0: Latest episode of SEPAD Pod. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Andrew Dellatola. Andrew is a lecturer in Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Leeds. He is also a visiting research fellow at the Middle East Centre at the LSC. He was formerly the chair of the LGBTQA Caucus of the ISA in 2020 2021. He holds a PhD from the LSC and has formerly worked at the American University in Cairo. Andrew is the author of a number of really fascinating books and articles, including his his recent book with Palgrave titled Civilization and the Making of the State in Lebanon and Syria, and he's also published articles in Third World Quarterly, the International Studies Review, and International Studies Quarterly. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been really looking forward to this.
1: Thank you for having me. I've
0: been looking forward to this as well. Well, thank you. That's kind of you to say. Um, it's always good to, to talk to someone from my old stomping ground, even though you've probably not stomped there all that much in the past year or so since starting at Leeds due to the pandemic. But um, I'm, I'm going to start with the, the usual question, which is, what got you interested in in politics and, and the, the Middle East, please?
1: Um. I think, you know, my interest in, in politics in the Middle East um, started from a very young age. <laughs> my mom my mom is Lebanese, um, and we grew up uh, kind of straddling this world of, in some ways, Lebanese diaspora in, in Montreal and Canada, and um, kind of Canadian, average Canadian middle-class um, society. Um so kind of I function in these two worlds and I was always interested in the the kind of positionality of that, even from a young age, in terms of, you know, trying to understand what some of my friends were doing on the holidays versus what what me and my family were doing on the holidays and you know what would be on, on the dinner table and trying to make sense of why these cultural differences there. Um, and then in addition to that, I mean, just kind of being around my mom and my grandparents and my aunts and my uncles, um, and listening to them talk about various, uh, various experiences of, of being in Lebanon, um, of the civil war, um, of the Israeli occupation of the south of Lebanon, and you know, as a kid, you don't really make sense of all of this. You hear you hear little quips of it, of of discussions, um, of comments, um, and you start. You s- at least I did. I started, you know, forming a bunch of questions in my head about, you know, what what are the, what what are these elderly people talking about? Um, and it was only as I got older. Um, did, I, did I start to kind of do my own reading about all of this? Um, and, you know, in, in kind of high school, I think I was really set on trying to develop a better understanding of society, of culture, of politics in, in the Middle East, very kind of broadly, but also and specifically with regards,
0: uh, with regards to Lebanon. So it's a it's a deeply personal process, then I guess.
1: Yeah, and it, you know, and I think it's been as much about kind of learning and thinking about the region and and the politics of the region as it has been about kind of discovering um, discovering who I am, at least on my mother's side and of of the family, and discovering, you know, what. And putting these pieces together in terms of various stories that I've heard growing up and, and kind of whispers that I've heard at, you know, dining
0: room tables over, over the holidays and stuff. Sure. You talked about those those points of difference. Can I just press you on, on it a little bit, if I may, please? Um, mm-hmm. you, the, the difference of growing up and the, the types of things that you would do in the holidays compared to, to your Canadian friends... Um, I mean, what sort of things are we, are we talking about here? And what sort of age are we talking about?
1: I mean, from, you know, I think as young as four and five. Wow, okay. Um, just, you know, there's that scene in My Big Fat Greek Wedding
0: where <laughs> the
1: main character as a kid um, brings, uh, brings Moussaka to school for lunch and all the kids are making fun of her right um for having this very strange food in, in her lunch box um and I think it really started around that kind of element right where where my where my friends would be bringing um where my friends would be bringing dunkaroos as a snack and I would have cacabalib <laughs> or or uh, mamool <laughs> as, as, as kind of the snack in the lunch box and trying to understand why why there was this kind of very simple banal difference but you know explaining to my friends that this is
0: what we eat at my
1: house
0: sure so we've had a lot of things mentioned on this podcast over the years um that's the first time we've we've had a reference to my big fat greek wedding um but that's excellent um and I think, given the two choices of food that you've mentioned, I think I know which one I would rather have. And I'm now starting to get a little bit hungry. Um, so you've got all this going on in your in in your sort of your formative years, your your intellectual development, and the, the questions of identity and politics starting to uh, starting to play out in your in your thought and engagement with the world. But then when you um, when you get to the, the point of going to university. What did you decide to, to do and, and, and why did you decide to, to, to do the things that you've done?
1: So uh, when I graduated high school, I actually went to college. They have a system in Canada, well, in Quebec, called CESHEP, where you do your, technic- your technical last year of high school and your first year of university. Um, and that reduces the university time right. with an North American system from four years to three years. Um, so I went and I did fine arts actually drawing and painting. Um, and I continued my university studies in that. Um, and I felt like it was an easy, not an easy way, but it was a way that I could explore, um, these elements of, of culture, of society, of politics, and of identity um, within kind of a creative space. Um, and then by the time I was graduating uh, from, from university in Canada, um, I went to the Ontario College of Art and Design. Um, I was in in two minds. I didn't know, I didn't want to be an artist per se. I didn't necessarily want to work in a gallery or a museum um, or kind of an archival studio. Um, And I knew that I wanted to continue to explore these questions that I was kind of raising through my practice and and through my classes. Um, And so I was thinking either I could do a law degree, which, you know, at least I'd be making money at the end <laughs> of my studies. Or I could or I could continue um, kind of questioning society and, and go into political science. Um, and I chose the latter <laughs> um, and I embarked on another degree in political science before
0: um, before doing my master's and, and my Ph.D., Amazing! That's fascinating, and and for for listeners, I should say that um, just before we recorded this podcast, Andrew and I had a chat, and he has some wonderful art adorning the walls of his home office. So um, that that makes a lot more sense, I guess, with your your art background. So, Andrew, you did your PhD at the LSE with Katrina um, Delacour and uh, and Farouz Tell us a little bit about that, please. I assume that 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 later became came this wonderful book that you've written. But um, just tell us a little bit about what you did in the PhD, and we can talk a little bit about the book as well then.
1: Um, yeah. So in the PhD, I was, I went. I, I mean, as as the PhD goes, I think for for many people, you go through these various iterations of what you're doing or what you're researching um, and you're, you're kind of trying to piece together something that would look at all similar to a PhD. And sometimes, you know, that seems like um, a project that is a little bit futile, um, but um, yeah, I, I started off kind of wanting to write about friendship, tribalism in kind of a theoretical sense and, um, and kind of networks or, or patterns of relations um, in the process of state formation. So I was really thinking about, again, reflecting on kind of my own family history in terms of um, where my family came from, how they settled in the south of Lebanon, um, and, and kind of the, the, the politics and the economics of that settlement and thereafter and the kinds of networks of privilege that um, they were embedded into um, and still are embedded into in some cases. Um, and also thinking about, you know, the, the kind of history of, of the Lebanese state, right? When we think about um, the Ossidans or the Safedins, these kinds of big names that kind of reappear constantly over time, um, within within Lebanon, within the context of politics and and society and um, economics, um, so I started off thinking really much, really really kind of deeply about um, those networks and and how that privilege is kind of handed down. Um, and as as that research was developing. And as I was kind of going further and further back into history, um, it became evident to me that a lot of these networks um, were changing over time as well. And they were changing over time because of various instances of kind of Ottoman modernization or French, British, and Russian pressure, um, an alliance formation between uh, various actors within society. Um, And I think that's really when the project began to take shape. And I noticed that there was actually a lot of discussion, not necessarily about race explicitly, um, but a lot of discussion about civilization um, and a lot of discussion about the likeness between, for example, um, the Maronites in, in Lebanon Vis-à-vis uh, the French um, and and kind of the French uh, imperial administrators um, who were stationed there, um, so that's really how the project took form from its infancy all the way <laughs> to the end.
0: Sure, this idea of civilization is really interesting. Um, obviously, it's it's central to the book, and it's something that you uh, you also explore beyond your uh, your monograph in. Particularly in the um, in the ISQ piece, I believe. Um, tell us a little bit about why civilization seems to be this this um, this concept that does so much work for you when it's it's seemingly um, or at least prima facie got so many problems with it, um, evokes so much so much um, philosophical work around the the concept itself.
1: Yeah, I think. Um it, it it has a lot of baggage to it, of course. And it's <laughs> that baggage, I think, that makes it so interesting. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think, you know, when we think about civilization or being civilized, um, it is very much tied to these structures of propriety, of, of being appropriate, of kind of... Um, having a certain idea of a moral framework um, that, that we act by. Um, And in, in a lot of cases that doesn't necessarily pose a problem, at least on the surface. Um, But then when we scratch, when we begin to scratch kind of at that a little bit, that's when, you know, we have these questions that come up that I'm particularly interested in, in, that um when we think about civilization or when we think about who is civilized or who is acting appropriate or who has who's acting by a right moral framework um those are essentially standards or benchmarks that have been set for a political purpose um by a certain people um and it's I would argue, reflective of their own kind of way of being. And so we get this kind of hegemonic understanding of this moral framework, um, of this way of being that we then, uh, kind of constitute as being the normal or the, or, or yeah, the normal or the standard way of being. Mm. And then everything else is measured up against that. Um, and this is you know this is not um, this is this is something that i'm particularly interested in with regards to the concept of civilization um and how it's deployed and how it's used and how it functions within society um but it's not something that that kind of like in, that intellectual um framing of you having the normal and then having everything measured up against that is not something that um, is innovative to this kind of concept. Um, you know, we there are other thinkers who have been doing this work um, for some time now, including post-colonial and decolonial thinkers, as well as queer theorists as well, um, who look at these kinds of binary categories that are set up and these hierarchies that are set up um, and try to understand the politics of those hierarchies, how they're reproduced, how those binaries are reproduced, and how they are fundamentally problematic to how we understand the world.
0: Sure. So it's, it's actually a really useful term to crack open these, these questions of of power, essentially power and, and identity politics and, and everything that's bound up in all of that. And that's that's really something that you explore in in detail in the book, and it's it's such a fascinating read, um, not just politically but philosophically as well. Um, exploring ideas of statehood and and questions of of I guess belonging and the the situation, uh, yeah, the situation of identity within a political project and the contestation of that identity within political projects. <laughs> Um, it's a really provocative read and a really challenging um, set of set of ideas. But if you could, Andrew, just just talk us through what what the book does, then, please. Uh, I mean, it's such a such a rich, comprehensive, and um, well, it's it's a really impressive monograph. Uh, you do so much with it. So, please just, um, just talk us through what, what you're trying to do.
1: So, I'm trying to, in the book, I'm trying to understand how the, this kind of framing of civilization um, has not just impacted the process of state formation, and how we think about states as well, and... and of the bigger kind of framing of what a state is and what a state isn't, how a state should act and shouldn't act, but also thinking about the way that um, that concept impacts society as well. Um, So who is given power on what basis, political power on what basis, um, how the idea of civilization Impacts uh, kind of social networks, social relations, um, various kinds of struggles as well um, politically within society Mm -hmm. and impacts again, as you said, um, kind of social contestation and and contestation over political identity. Um, Everything from the establishment of state institutions and administrations and kind of the codification of law to, in the case of the Ottoman Empire, of course, um, to, um, instances of revolt, um, to kind of the formation of the independent and recognized state, um, and how all of that has its own history and baggage in relation to, um, in relation to these notions
0: of civilization. And where does the idea of of post coloniality fit into this?
1: I think. Um, I, I I always have a little bit of um, a question mark that goes over goes off over my head whenever I think about the term post colonial. Um, sure. For that is yes, we can be making the argument that you know there is a we are living in a post colonial world, right? Where kind of the um, the dynamics of colonialism as we understand it in history have fundamentally changed to the extent that we don't have these overt colonial structures in, in much of the world anyways um, anymore. But I would argue that the post-colonial world actually is very, is very much sitting on the shoulders of colonialism in so many ways. Um, From everything about the way that you know uh, elites in post colonial states um have retained wealth for example, and retained status to a certain extent um or even just the state itself right the mm-hmm. is the state itself not a colonial product and if it is then doesn't it reproduce colonialism so um i would I would think. I, while I kind of enjoy working with post-colonial literature to a great extent, um, I think there is a question there to be had about what is meant by the post-colonial. What are we actually post?
0: Yeah, yeah. That's something that you flag up, I think, um, or at least engage with um, in, in some interesting ways in, in your... In your work outside of the book, I think um, there's the questions about the colonialism, but also I think some interesting questions about about peace and post conflict um, in your British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies, peace, but um, but also looking at questions of sexuality as well within the context of, of civilization. So there's and there's so many things that that I assume come from the book and ideas of identity and belonging and questions, philosophical and political questions that come out of the book. Um, If we can, let's, let's touch on a few of them. Um, if that's okay, the the piece in the International Studies Review um, titled "A Racializing Religion: Constructing Colonial Identities in the Syrian Provinces of the Nineteenth Century." And tell us a little bit about that, please, and and what you're trying to achieve there. It's a piece that you um, you co-authored in 2019, but it's a really interesting piece. Thank
1: you. Um, yeah. So that in that piece, um, that piece really emerged with within these discussions that I was having with my co-author, Dr. Joanne Yao, um, throughout the PhD about the material that I was finding, Mm -hmm. um, in the archives, um, and on her part as well, um, the material that she was looking at with regards to her own PhD work, um, where there were these kinds of overt, In 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 the case of her um, PhD, there were these kinds of there were these cases of overt kind of racial hierarchies that were being deployed specifically um, in the quote unquote scramble for Africa, Um, and in in my case, those dynamics were present. And you could, you get this sense that there is this kind of hierarchy, hierarchization that's going on, um, within kind of these interactions between the French, the British, and the Russians, and and the populations in the Syrian provinces mm-hmm. of the Ottoman Empire. Um, but they're not as explicit. Um, there are instances where race is brought up in terms of not knowing kind of the racial character of the population. Um, There's one quote that I love by, uh, by a French administrator. Um, By I love, I mean, I love using or I love referencing. (laughs) You don't love the essence of the quote. (laughs) uh, He says that the native population has bred so much with the Turks that it's impossible to, to distinguish um, dis- distinguish between the races. I'm paraphrasing. I'm getting that quote wrong. <laughs> but it's that's essentially the essence of it. And then after reading that and after kind of seeing that or, or seeing kind of pieces of that discussion or that quote um, kind of reemerge in other ways throughout the archives, it becomes evident that there was this practice of... Racialization that was occurring where um, it wasn't necessarily based on kind of the, or what we would think of as the traditional kind of characteristics of race in terms of phrenology or, or skin color. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very much based on kind of the religious character of, of the population. Um, and that religious character of the population was tied to this ability to be civilized as well as this ability to become civilized. Um, And so in that article, we're very much exploring um, those dynamics and and trying to link up these discussions about race, the kind of science of racism as it was emerging in the 18th and 19th centuries to, um, to these, in these periods of interference and intervention in the Syrian provinces where a lot of kind of administrative, imperial administrative programming or policy um, was very much happening on these questions of race, but using religion um, instead.
0: Where does the hierarchical dimension fit into that then? Is this purely a... Um... A hierarchy based on on the the colonial overlords, if you will, or is there a is there more of a quote unquote indigenous hierarchy at play as well?
1: I, mean, I think there was, with regards to the Ottoman Empire, of course, there was a fairly indigenous hierarchy that was at play. Um, it was a Muslim empire, yeah, um, and you know the millet system and and the head taxes and and that were very much evident, um, but at the same time, um, there was this issue of kind of this this dynamic of tolerance within Ottoman society to a certain extent, um, and sometimes that gets romanticized, um, and I don't intend to do that. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, there there was this there there was this reality of. Um, of a lot of the provinces being quite heterogeneous in terms of (laughs) religious character. Um, Whereas, um, you know, in in Europe, that just wasn't necessarily the case. Um, If you're looking at kind of the British archives with regards to Jewish immigration to London, for example, um, it's a lot of this language of you know, the scum that are moving into East London, they're kind of degrading, they're degrading society, they're taking our jobs, um, they need to leave, we need to close our borders. Um, some of the same kind of language that is being used today with regards to uh, immigration to this country again. Um, but in Spain, right, there was an exodus of the Jewish population, not by choice; it was by force. And the Ottoman Empire had resettled those um, those Spanish Jews in in its territories, um, and so that does need to be given. I think credits where 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 it belongs. Right, we do need to acknowledge that. Um, but the kind of hierarchies that were being established in Europe, um, were very much being used to justify the kind of violence and extraction and exploitation that was being committed around the world um, through colonization and through imperialism. Um, And those hierarchies very much placed um, Europe and, and white Christian Europe in particular as this kind of first civilization that has a duty to save the rest of the world, um, and then from there you get the the kind of um, hierarchies of um, of other populations. So again, right, you get the the kind of white European Christian as being the normal or the standard or the benchmark that everyone mm-hmm. else has to meet yeah. in terms of. Um, way way of being, kind of society, of politics, of order, and then everything else just kind of falls below that. And the Ottoman Empire, depending on who you're reading, um, fell within this second or secondary civilization. It was not yet ready to be recognized as having civilized character, of being able to engage with international public law, as it was developing in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, was not able to access the right of sovereignty in the same way that European states were. Um, and so, I mean, it, in, in kind of the worst sense of the word, it was very much a boys club, and I don't think there is a best sense of the word when it comes to that term. <laughs> yeah. But um, the Ottoman Empire was racialized in this particular way that um, though... Um, though there wasn't an explicit racial characterization that um, developed from this relationship um, there was a notion of the Turk which to a certain degree was or had become synonymous with being Muslim Um, and within that this idea that the The Turk or the Muslim was inherently violent, um, unable to fulfill kind of their masculine duties, unable to govern in an appropriate way, and were effectively um, holding the Christians within the empire back from attaining a civilized nature or civilized status. Um, and this is something that you know we see it in kind of the, the relationship formation again between the French and the Maronites. We see this mm-hmm. also between the Russians and the Orthodox communities um, as well as, you know, the the European help that was given to uh, Greece during the Greek war of independence. Um, and then what followed afterwards, of course. Yeah. Um, so all of this, I think, you know, kind of speaks to this process of, of racialization, of hierarchization, with regards to um, the Ottoman Empire and where the Ottoman Empire sat in relation
0: to Europe, according to the Europeans. Sure. And these are, I guess, questions that you you apply more broadly across, um, across history and across international relations, um, reflecting on questions of race, of civilization, and Hierarchies, and you do it in such a wonderful way, Andrew. It's really, really fascinating and um, and, and provocative. So I, I urge people to have a look at your piece in the um, the ISQ, um, and also your your recent piece in in Millennium that that look at these these questions applied broadly to both um, the region and the global South, and and the discipline of of. If we can talk of international relations as a discipline anymore, um, I'm conscious of, of time, and we've taken up a great deal of your time already. But I wonder if I can ask you one final question, Andrew, if that's okay, please. And that is, um, what is the role of sexuality in all of this? I mean, where does sexuality fit, not just in your in your research, but in these broader processes that we're talking about? You you just mentioned masculinity and the inability. of of particular groups to live up to this ideal um, masculine type. So I wonder if you can just elaborate on, on sexuality a little bit more, please.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, sexuality is um, a very kind of interesting question when it comes to civilization, I think, or, or kind of these notions of civilization in that, um, and I, and I write about this in the ice cube piece where, Um, the idea of of sexuality um, as being kind of a measurement for civilized engagement very much I would argue developed around um, developed around this need for capitalist production as well as a kind of had this moral justification in terms of you have a man and a woman and that's, that's the right way of being. And that's the right way, that's the right kind of framework. Um, but that also served a, um, that also served a very kind of important social, economic and political role in society, particularly in Western Europe, um, during the 18th and 19th centuries as, as kind of, Europe was expanding and, and the industrialization happened and whatnot. Um, and that's to say that society and the state, I would argue very much depended on these kind of heterosexual framings of um, kind of male duties, female duties um, and the public and the private Um with regards to um, the development of the modern state on the one hand, um, sorry, this 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 is kind of jumbled, but in the development of the modern state on the one hand, where you had um, kind of the emergence of parliaments and, and um, public governance, that was very much a male-dominated sphere, and, mm-hmm. and women were meant to kind of engage in the private sphere at home um, and sorry Andrew really what
0: you, what sort of time period are we talking about here just just to add a bit of clarity <laughs>
1: um, we're talking I think I'm um, reflecting more on kind of the 18th century sure. okay um, and kind of the the changes in relation to um, the changes in relation to capitalism vis-a-vis the industrialization in particular. Sure, okay. Um, and how that affected the household um, and what that meant for the household in terms of um, where women were supposed to be seen or not seen and where men were supposed to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kind of duties that were required of each um, where women were kind of more engaged in this form of national or, uh, yeah, national reproduction, social reproduction. Um, they, you know, kind of, they weren't engaged in parliamentary politics, for example, or state politics. Um, but they had a responsibility at home to, to raise the children to be good moral citizens of that state. Um, and so, a lot of how we understand the modern state, I would argue, um, comes from this relationship, from these heterosexual relationships, which is why I think, um, and this is something that I'm continuously or kind c- of continuing to explore now, um, why there was so much emphasis on regulating sexuality in, in Europe, and in particular, regulating sexuality in the colonies, or, or kind of the imperial peripheries, um, because there was a need for, um, for labor to be reproduced, um, there was a need for, um, for kind of masculine bodies to be out there. And exploited um, in terms of resource extraction, in terms and, and also in terms of you know being on the front lines of, of many European wars. Um, and I think that framing of sexuality is not often discussed, it's becoming more and more discussed now. So, um Chris Chitty um, wrote a phenomenal book called uh, *Sexual Hegemony, um, which talks about this as well. There's also kind of social reproduction theorists that have been talking about these dynamics and feminists as well. Um, my interest, however, is taking that and looking at how that was applied to places in in the Middle East um, and how that um, was applied and the justification for that application. So looking at um, this kind of uh, this dynamic of of, um, a moral framing um, where any kind of uh, engagement in homosexual practices was seen as uh, inherently problematic to Um, the ability to be civilized, the ability to occupy masculine spaces, the ability um, to be considered a man and and thus be considered civilized. Um, And so thinking about that in that context, how then um, sexuality was regulated through... Uh, various instances of kind of imperial interference or colonization, um, and how that has then been kind of taken up by current political elites in uh, in the region of the Middle East as being something that is culturally embedded, as something that is... um, Moral and essentially anti-Western, anti-imperial. So there's this kind of battleground, as um, Katerina Dalacura points out uh, in in her article on this topic. There's this kind of political battleground over over sexuality. Um, in saying that as well, um, there's an, there's this kind of wider issue of LGBTQ rights, right? So these uh, kind of global LGBTQ rights and the way that we read and understand LGBTQ rights is often through this specter or through this kind of framing of civilization and that it's not overt, uh, it's not explicit. Um, but, you know, when, when, Someone who's from the LGBTQ community wants to go travel to Lebanon, for example, and um, they ask me if it's safe. Um, it always it always brings up this question because, as an LGBTQ identifying person, I don't think anywhere in particular is safe for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see this, right? We see this in London, where there's been homophobic attacks. We see this in the states, where. Um, trans trans women of color are constantly being murdered and there's no kind of repercussion, there's no investigation into these murders. Um, and so when someone asks me if being gay in Lebanon is safe, right? they're on the one hand assuming that it's safe here when it's in fact not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, they're kind of that question of safety in Lebanon is being produced around these characteristics of what is an Arab or how an Arab is constructed or how a Lebanese person is constructed if they don't identify as being Arab. Um, And the kinds of politics around that. Um, And so they see Lebanon as being, um, as being kind of dominated by Hezbollah and therefore this kind of Muslim um, space that is violent and has terrorists and there's kind of political turmoil. And yes, there is political turmoil. (laughs) Yes, um, Hezbollah is in politics there, but that is not necessarily society. Um, And it also erases parts of that society that do identify as LGBTQ and, and kind of live their daily lives there as well. Right. So if they can do it and they can, and they can find spaces that, um, are welcoming and safe for them, um, then, you know, surely whoever is going to travel will be able to, um, find those spaces as well. It's not, also not that difficult. You can just google um, <laughs> you can Google a lot of these bars and, and restaurants. Yeah. Um, and so there's this kind of notion that the global south or the majority world is not as advanced in, within these kinds of realms of sexuality as well, um, which again, hinge on these notions of civilization, even though they're not explicit. Um, and so I, I want to explore not just how the state regulates and governs sexuality, um, but also um, how individuals function within these spaces and the kinds of politics um, that they experience and that we can kind of theorize from that we can understand better the political world in which they exist. Um, And that I think is particularly important because it's not through kind of, I would argue anyways, it's not through necessarily elite politics that we get that kind of um, grit of society that we can understand kind of society and, and social politics um, but it's through those who are marginalized and have to function within these marginal spaces, within these spaces that are both, you know, in in kind of family homes, um, but also out on the streets, and as well building their own communities.
0: So I think in that answer, you've you've just flagged up what it is about your work that is simultaneously so very important for, um, for scholarship and for the quote-unquote real world, but also demonstrating why I find what you're doing so so philosophically, conceptually, uh, intellectually rich and fascinating. This intersection of, of questions of, of sexuality, identity, belonging, space, home, um, the state, civilization, all these things coming together, in, uh, in in in, one particular answer on a question about sexuality. So it's it's so rich, it's so fascinating, and I really do implore people to to take the time to to read your wonderful book, but also the um, the the articles that that have been produced in some ways stemming from it, but perhaps more more appropriately reflecting your broader intellectual curiosity. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today, Andrew. I've really appreciated your time and I've really uh, learned a lot just listening to to you and, and reading your work. So thank you so much.
1: No, thank you, Simon. Thank you for having me and thank you again for reaching out and inviting me to, to come and, and talk about my work. Um, thank you for engaging with my work. Um,
0: I know that you're also very busy. It's an absolute pleasure, and as I say, it's it's so rich, so fascinating, and, and really, really fabulous stuff. A huge thank you to Andrew for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter, at A underscore Della That's at A underscore Della Thank you also to you for your time, for listening, for spreading the good word. Uh, Please do like, subscribe, share, disseminate, and do all of those things that we always have to ask you to do. We really do appreciate it. As always, until next time.